at the same time, if you're going to sell the property after five years, you have to also include the profits from sale in your returns. Whereas if you plan on holding on to the property forever, and that's how you're underwriting the deal, you're missing out maybe the largest profit that you're going to make. Best ever listeners, I'm so excited to share today's sponsor with you. It's Eastern Union Funding and Arbor Realty Trust. If you're in the multifamily space, you likely recognize these names, but have you used them? Uh, I'm guessing if you haven't, then you probably know someone who has. I can tell you personally, we have used uh, Mark Belsky. He is a point person at Eastern Union Funding as a partner with us, and he has helped us secure debt uh, for actually a deal we closed on this month. And we've worked with him. Um, In addition, my clients, my program, my consulting program have worked with him to successfully close on deals. When we were starting out, Ashcroft was starting out, we had somewhat of a track record, but we weren't fully as established with our investor network. I went to him and we secured some equity, $500,000 in equity to fund one of our deals. While he works with more institutional partners, he's brought $200 million in equity over the last 12 months. He was able to help us out there and we built a relationship with him and Eastern Union Funding ever since. So if you need equity for your deal and you have a track record, then he's your point person. His number is 212-897-9875. If you need debt, then he partners up with Arbor on a lot of transactions. So if you're a multifamily borrower who wants agency or bridge debt, then that's the team to work with. Uh, We have worked with their team, both Eastern Union and Arbor, on deals. And people who have purchased our deals, purchased deals from us, have used Arbor, as well as my clients in my consulting program, they've used it. So this is a recommendation that comes from firsthand experience. And the last thing I'll say about uh, working with Mark Belsky at Eastern Union is that if you need a loan guarantor, but don't have that track record quite yet, then Mark can look at what you've, the deal you've got And assuming it checks out, he can make introductions to people he knows as potential loan guarantors for your deal. So debt, equity, and potentially loan guarantors. Uh, All you need, well, you need to find a deal, obviously. Um, But besides that, you know, the other main components of the deal they can help you out with. So talk to Mark Belsky. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com and his phone number 212-897-9875. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And today we're doing follow along Friday. It's part two of a two-part series on underwriting a value-add apartment community. Part one is episode, what episode is that? 1445. 1445 is part one. 1445, 1445. That's a bunch of episodes. Mm -hmm. Part one was 1445. So you'll probably want to listen to that one if you haven't yet. This will make a lot more sense because this is part two of 10 tips for underwriting a value-add apartment community. Normally, we interview guests on this show, but follow along Friday, we break from that pattern and we talk about what we got going on and or talk about 
some specific lessons that we think will be helpful for you in your real estate endeavors. So where do we want to pick up, my friend? So I just want to quickly mention the podcast episode, 1,445. I want to quickly just mention what the first five tips were. And then if you want to know the answer to these questions, basically, go and listen to that episode, 1445. So uh, the five tips that we went over was how to calculate an offer price. We talked about why you shouldn't trust a broker's offering memorandum. We talked about how to calculate the rental premiums for after you take over the property. We talked about what to watch out for when you're performing a rental comp analysis. And we also talked about why it's important to confirm your underwriting assumptions with your property management company. So most of it had to do with how to calculate the rents after you take over the property, as well as your stabilized expense assumptions and why you must confirm them with your property management company. So those are the first five. These next five will also help you with your underwriting and before I go into it, I was going through bigger pockets and trying to add value to people. And I can tell that there's a lot of confusion on underwriting for larger apartment communities compared to the smaller property. So I'm really glad that we're doing this episode and that just kind of confirms the need for this type of information out there. And what's most common that's causing confusion? Well, that's his first one that I want to go over. Good segue. You're a smooth operator. <laughs> Which is technically number six, but it has to do with the actual rents. For example, when you're doing a regular smaller deal, you typically look at what their actual rent is, and then you'll do your rent comp analysis or talk to a company and figure out what the rent could be after you take over. But for apartments, it's a little bit different because you're on such a large scale, a 2% decrease in rent across one unit is going to have a much larger impact on your revenue because there's 100, 200 units. So when you're underwriting a deal, you don't want to just input the actual rent that's being collected. You want to input the market rent. So I think a lot of trouble with is distinguishing between the actual rents and the market rents. So the actual rent is the rent that's being collected on the actual lease. Someone signed a lease for 600 bucks a month. That's how much they're paying. The market rent is how much the unit should be rented for if it was rented to market standards. Now, sometimes those might be the exact same, but if they're not, the difference between those two is called loss to lease. I see a lot of people confused about what this loss to lease means. And the loss of lease is the amount of rent loss due to the actual rent being below the market rents. The reason this is important, number one, is because if you rent out a unit to someone 12 months ago at market rent, 12 months later, you're not going to be increasing the rent each month. So 12 months later, assuming the market went up, their unit is going to be below market rent. So that difference is called loss of lease. That's money that you're leaving on the table because that unit's not up to market rate. Now, typically, a good percentage you want to see is between 2 and 3% because you are assuming that the rent is going to increase 2 to 3%. For example, I was looking at an apartment deal yesterday where the loss of lease was 100 bucks, And if you just input the actual rents, then you won't have an understanding of the historical loss of lease of that property, which is really important because you want to know what the loss of lease will be after you acquire the property because you want to know how much money you're leaving on the table. So that's one big thing, the difference between the market rents and the actual rents. Something else that you need to take into account is a vacancy, of course. But again, something else that's different between how you typically underwrite a smaller deal and how you underwrite an apartment deal is you don't want to use the percent of vacant units. You want to use the vacancy's loss, so the rent that's lost due to the vacant units. So for example, if you have 10 vacant units and they're all one beds, the amount of money you're losing is a lot different if they're all two bedroom units. And this comes down to the distinction between the economic and the physical occupancy rate, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast. 
And the physical vacancy rate is not as important as the economic occupancy because you want to know how much money you're actually collecting and the physical occupancy rate does not take that into account. So you're going to have 90% physical occupancy rate, but maybe 10% of those units aren't paying the rent on time or aren't paying rent in general or paying only a portion of the rent. Your economic occupancy rate is going to be 80%, and that's actually what's going to be used to calculate the cash flow, not the physical occupancy rate. So kind of a combination of all those things, which have to do with the actual revenue line items, knowing the difference between the actual rents and the market rents, and also the difference between the physical and the economic occupancy rate. I think understanding that will help you a lot when you're underwriting these types of deals. And this information is so valuable. I was not resourceful enough when I got started to find the source that educated me on this. And I'm so glad that we're talking to the best ever listeners about this because it's necessary to know. And if you're wondering how to double check economic versus physical occupancy, well, you double check that in three ways. One is the profit and loss statement that's provided to you. They might fudge the numbers a little bit or a lot. Two is the actual leases to verify that those leases add up to the rent that is allegedly being collected. And then three would be the bank statements. Looking at the bank statements for that entity and determining how much income is coming into the property. A lot easier to do on larger deals than smaller deals because it's been my experience talking to people because I haven't bought a property. I went from single family homes to 150 plus units. So I haven't done the middle range, but I've talked to people who have. And one common challenge that they come across checking the bank statements is the owner mixes the income with all their other income sources. And so it's really hard to parse that out. And a solution to that is hire a firm that will help you with that, assuming that you can get those bank statements from the owner. Exactly. And something else I want to focus on before we go on the next step is if you can listen to the last episode and we talked all about how to calculate the rental premiums and what to look for in the offering memorandum. When you're looking at a deal, they're most likely going to tell you what the market rent is, but always make sure you're double checking and that it's accurate and always make sure that they're basing that off of rental comps that are similar. Because I was just looking at a deal yesterday where they told me the property had a $100 loss of lease, the units as is were $100 under rented, and here's the comps to prove it. And then I looked up all the comps and what they had that the property didn't have were pools, fitness centers, clubhouses, ponds with fountains, much nicer interiors. And that's not a rental comp. Those aren't the same property. So how am I supposed to determine the market rent of my unit if I'm looking at properties that are not even close to the same as mine? So always keep that in mind and make sure that you're not just taking their market rent at face value. Make sure you do some investigation on your end first. As I said, that's the big one that I've seen. These other ones are also very important. Number one is taxes. So when you are underwriting an apartment deal, it was likely purchased by someone a couple of years ago at a purchase price that's much lower than what you're going to buy it at. And the taxes on their profit and loss statement are going to be based off of essentially how much money they paid for the property. So once you buy the property, 
from them at new purchase price, the taxes are not going to be the exact same. So you can't assume that you're going to pay the exact amount of taxes as they are. So this is something else that you might find in an offering memorandum is that their pro forma will have the exact same taxes that the current owners have, but they mentioned how they've done all these improvements to the property. And you look it up on that auditor site and discover that they're selling it for $2 million more than what they bought it for. What you need to do is you need to base your stabilized tax assumption on the actual purchase price. So exactly what you do is you'll want to go to the local auditor or appraisal site and find out what their tax rate is. So it's going to be some percentage, 2.35% or whatever. So you're going to go on that site and find the exact one for the city or the, the county that that property is located in. And then you're going to take that, multiply it by 80% of the purchase price, which is what you usually do. California, I know it's 100% of the purchase price, but wherever you find this tax rate, it should show you exactly how they calculate the tax rate. It's going to be 80% or 100% of the purchase price times the tax rate. And that's going to be the tax rate that you use. And the reason it's important is because you're going to look at deals sometimes where the taxes, which is one of the largest expenses, is going to double. And that's going to have a huge impact on the amount of returns you can make at a specific purchase price. So make sure that you're using the correct tax number when you're calculating your purchase price. And it's common practice to protest the taxes and negotiate with the county. And I highly recommend that you have someone on your team to do that for your asset. One way you could attempt to not have taxes increase is by purchasing the entity instead of the property. That way it doesn't show a sale on record, but it's not bulletproof. The mortgage that you're getting is going to be recorded. And for Cincinnati in particular, they have lawyers on staff full time. The Cincinnati public schools have lawyers on staff full-time who are just looking for transactions to increase the taxes uh. because you know school needs their money. So there's no bulletproof way of avoiding the increase in taxes, so I would just anticipate it happening. But there are ways that you can attempt to not have it happen or not have it happen as much. Exactly. So there are two of part two is taxes and make sure that you use the correct tax rate and the correct tax expense for the base of the purchase price. By the way, if you purchase the entity, buyer beware because you're also purchasing all the issues that they might have incurred as a result of their ownership. So for example, there might be liens on the entity. There might be someone who comes seven years later, however long later, and says, hey, this bill was due and you have no clue what they're talking about because it was the previous owner. A good attorney could find out most of that stuff prior to purchasing the entity, but there's no guarantees. Mm -hmm. They'll find everything. Exactly. Okay. The third tip is going to be about renovations. Now, I know we've focused on this in the past, but I'm just going to reiterate it again. For the interior renovations, this is talking about value-added community. So you're buying a property that the current owner has already started a value-add program and just hasn't finished it yet, or you're going to do a value-add program to 100% of the units. So these are four questions you need to ask in order to ask yourself, the broker, the owner, to help you determine what the interior renovation costs are going to be. Number one, you want to know how many units were actually renovated by the current owner. So if you read through the offer memorandum or you ask the owner or you look at the rent roll, you should be able to determine how many units are renovated versus how many aren't. The next question I want to ask is, 
assuming that they've renovated units, is what were the actual unit upgrades? And once you know those, are you going to be replicating those? Or are you going to be doing more than that or less? Probably won't be doing less, but are you going to be doing the exact same or are you going to be doing more? The third question you want to ask is, what period of time were those units renovated? Now, if you remember back to two following Fridays ago when we were talking about the underwriting part of the best ever apartment syndication book, we talked about what you need to look for when you're looking at the rental comps on the offer memorandum, and you want to know that if they're being used as a comp, were those units renovated within a timeline that's similar to how quickly you're going to be renovating the units? So same thing here. You want to know how long it took them to renovate those units because the next question is going to be what premium was achieved. And if they were renovated over a long period of time, then that premium is not going to be as accurate if they were renovated in the last couple of months. So the reason why you want to ask all these questions, you want to know exactly how many units you're going to be renovating and you want to know to what level you're going to have to renovate those units. So say, for example, the current owners have already renovated 50% of the units to, let's just say, basic upgrades. And your goal is going to be to do premium upgrades for all the units. So you're going to go in there and spend a certain amount of money for the original 50% that were already updated, but not as much as you would spend for the ones that had not been renovated at all. Whereas if you didn't ask this question, you would assume that it's going to cost twice as much as it actually would. And then you also need to know how much money you're going to make based off of those upgrades and determine if they make sense from a return standpoint. So those are the four questions you want to ask in regards to specifically the interiors. Next, of course, is the exterior upgrades. And really the only way you can figure this out is you or someone has to visit the property in person. If it is an on-market deal, they're going to have an offering memorandum that tells you that we need to replace the roofs and the parking lot, and that's it. But unless you actually go to the property and look at the roofs, look at the exteriors, look at the landscaping, there's no other way to know exactly what you need to do without, again, seeing in person, preferably with someone who has construction experience. So if your business partner has construction experience, they should come with you or a contractor. Of course, if you're not in the market, either plan a trip or if you trust, if you have a trusted team member or a property management company or a real estate broker is willing to go there and do it for you, take pictures, take notes, that could help too. But in order to determine the exterior budget, you have to go visit the property in person. And then lastly, once you've determined exactly how much money it's going to cost for the interiors and exteriors, you always want to have the contingency for the unexpected. Because again, you're just looking at it with your eyes before you're submitting an offer. So it's going to be an assumption of how much it's going to cost. So you always want to add in a little extra just in case you uncover some things during due diligence that you didn't expect, or if you uncover things after you buy the property that you didn't expect. So a good rule of thumb here is 10 to 15% of the entire budget. So you want to take the interior costs plus the exterior costs and add an additional 10 to 15%, and that'll be your total renovation CapEx budget. That's number three. Or eight. Eight. Right. Great. Yep. Number nine is actually one of the three immutable laws of real estate investing. And that is always have operating reserves when you're buying a property. So when you're underwriting a value at apartment deal and an idea of the purchase price is going to be, you want to add an additional one to 5% of the purchase price as an operating account fund. And then obviously the higher range is if there's a lot more deferred maintenance on the property, the lower end range is the more deferred maintenance is already addressed. Now this is to cover unexpected dips in occupancy this is to cover unexpected CapEx projects. It's actually to cover things that you can't pay for with the amount of revenue you've made so far within the first couple of years because 
of course, you're keeping an ongoing lender reserves and you're going to have cash flow coming in. But if something happens in the first couple of years, you haven't created a fund for that yet. How are you going to pay for it? You have to do a capital call, pay for it out of pocket. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you're not going to have to worry about it because you're going to have an operating account fund. Now, a specific example of where this would have come in handy for me, if you're a loyal Best Avenue listener, when I talked about all the boiler issues I went through, if I would have had an operating account fund, I would have been able to, I guess it would have technically been out of pocket regardless because it was my money either way, but I wouldn't have been as surprised. And I would have just been able to take it out of a fund that I already had as opposed to having it coming out of my personal expenses. Another example of when this would come into handy is let's say you are underwriting a value-add deal and it meets your return projections overall during the whole period, but let's say year one, the cash-on-cash return is lower than the preferred return you're offering to your investors. An operating account fund is a way that you can pay that difference upfront for the first year. And then of course, the cash flow from the property will cover it the rest. Or you can just have it accumulate, but this is just another option for getting your investors their returns starting from day one. That's number nine. And then lastly, number 10 has to do with the sales disposition or the sales assumptions. So when you're underwriting a value at apartment deal, well, let's just take a step back. So something else that I notice is that when your people are underwriting these smaller deals, is, and I mentioned this in part one, is that they just have input one set of numbers. And then the return based off of those numbers is kind of how they figure out, okay, it's 15% cash and cash returns, I'll buy it. But of course, it's not going to be the case. You want to have a form of budget that is going to be a yearly breakdown for every year you plan on holding the property. The last step of that is to actually include the sales. So Let's say, for example, you're planning on holding on the property for five years. You're going to have a year one through five budget. And then the cash flow from that is going to be taken into account for your cash and cash return. At the same time, if you're going to sell the property after five years, you have to also include the profits from sale in your returns. Whereas if you plan on holding on the property forever, and that's how you're underwriting the deal, you're missing up maybe the largest profit that you're going to make. So one thing that I wanted to talk about for disposition is how do you determine the cap rate at sale. So you're going to know your NOI based off of your budget and your rent increases and the likes. But how do you figure out what the the other part to the value is the cap rate? So what we do, and this is to be very conservative, is we actually assume the market is going to be worse at sale than it was at purchase. And how you do this is you set a cap rate that is 20 to 50 basis points, which is 0.2 to 0.5% higher than the in-place cap rate. So you buy the property at your purchase price and based off of the in-place NOI, you get a cap rate, let's say 6%. And if we're going to sell the property five years later, we're going to assume an exit cap rate of something between 6.2 and 6.5%. And that's what will be used to calculate the sales price. So we'll take the exit NOI, this new cap rate to figure out what the sales price is. We'll subtract out closing costs, brokers fees, things like that, as well as the remaining debt that you owe on the loan to calculate how much money you're going to actually make at sale. And that's really important because if you're making multiples of millions of dollars at sale and you're not taking that into account into your returns, you're leaving a lot of money on the table and you're leaving a lot of return percentages off the table that your investors aren't going to see when they are initially looking at the deal. So always make sure you're including these sales profits in your return projections. What we actually do is we have two separate returns. We've got the cash on cash return from just the cash flow from the property. And then we have a cash on cash return that includes the proceeds from sale. And these 10 tips 
Theo went over five in a previous episode. That was episode one, four, four, five. Did I remember that right? One, four, four, five. And then six through 10. These are the tips for underwriting a value add community. And the important thing to think about after you've applied these tips is that you're likely going to have a management partner. And if they're not aligned with you on how you're underwriting, then you might as well just throw it out the window and then hand your wallet over and tell them to take it. Because if the executors are not aligned with what you're projecting in your spreadsheet, then you're going to fail. Or at minimum, there's a higher likelihood of failure on the project. And I'm defining failure as not meeting whatever you have in your projections. And this is a common mistake, so please don't do this. And the common mistake is doing the underwriting, closing on the deal, handing the budget over to the property management company and saying, let's go team. Instead, you should be aligned with your property management company. So what I mean specifically is give them your budget prior to you getting awarded the deal and solidifying the terms with the seller. Make sure that your property management company has signed off on it. Because so many times I talk to investors and they say they did not share the budget with the property management company, the team that's actually executing on the deal, and things went haywire right out of the gate. Or you shared it with them and the management company comes back afterwards with a revised budget and nothing gets solidified and the investor thinks, ah, we'll make it work. It's possible you can make it work, maybe with another management company, depending on whatever variables they're changing. But that's something that we've got to always keep in mind because the main way we can lose money on deals is lack of execution. If you're buying a large apartment community, 150 plus units, or even 50 plus units, think about it, 50 units, you're dealing with 50 families and dealing with 50 individualized dwellings. They're connected, but they're individualized. And there's a lot that can go wrong on the execution. So make sure that you talk to your management company and they sign off on the budget. And even better, you see a template of what the budget reporting will be from them prior to closing. Because there have been times where I've talked to investors and say, Joe, I sent it to them. They said, yes, that's good. But then two months into it, I finally get the finances back from the management company and they've got this wacky budget. I don't know where that came from. They said we're on track with the budget, but it's not the budget I had. So a way to decrease the chances of that happening is by receiving a report, the template Mm -hmm. with your numbers plugged in that just shows this is the budget we're going to be going off of. Those are all great points. And just one thing to add to that Make sure that when you're interviewing property management companies, taking even further back, you ask them, will you review my pro forma or will you review my budget before we put a deal on a contract? And the answer you want to hear is yes, that they will review it. And of course, in combination with them having experienced repositioning properties so you can, that you can trust that they actually know what they're talking about. Those two things combined when you're interviewing uh, property management companies are key because when the time comes, if you never ask them, 
and you say, hey, you know, can you review this? And they say, no, what are you going to do? You're going to start your search for a new product management company all over again. Yep. Very true. So those are the top 10 tips for underwriting. And again, there's a lot of differences between value add, apartment community underwriting, and the smaller deals. Um, so I think all of these tips are going to, to push you in the correct direction when you're starting to look at these larger types of deals. Well, just to clarify, when you say there's a lot of difference between value add apartment communities and the smaller deals, will you oh, so yeah, sorry. define those? I would define that as four units or less because most people will underwrite four units or less as if it's a, a single family house and they'll use right. the percentages for expenses. But for a 10 unit value add, this applies. Yes. Or five unit value add, this applies. Exactly. Cool. And heck, you can even apply this stuff to these smaller deals too, to have more accurate underwriting. I guess what I was saying is that there's a lot of differences between what I see people actually do and what I used to do compared to what's the correct way to have the best assumptions possible and account for as many things as possible. Cool. Makes sense. All right, so let's move on to updates and observations. Joe, you want to give us an update on that property you were looking at in Cincinnati? Oh, yeah, the six-unit flood zone, flood insurance too high, not mm-hmm. buying it. So there's that. No diversification for me in smaller stuff, which is fine. And again, for anyone who didn't hear the episode where we talked about it, I was not going to be active on that. I was going to be the money man and we were going to do 50% ownership on the deal. My friend slash real estate investor locally was going to do the management and even about $30,000. So the first $30,000 out of the entity that owns the property would go to me because that'd be repayment. Then everything after that would be split 50-50. But nonetheless, didn't work out. Flood insurance too high in the flood zone. Some things are too good to be true. It was killing that 2% rule too. I mean, just, just, oh, I was seeing $100 bills in my dreams. (laughs) And the other update I have is Colleen, my wife and I, went to a Jordan Peterson conference or seminar I guess it's more accurate. Two nights ago in Cincinnati, he's doing a tour and it's something I recommend. He's doing a tour all over the country. I send it to my siblings who live in Dallas, Fort Worth, because he's going to be there October 11th. And if you're not familiar with Jordan Peterson, he's a psychologist, used to be a Harvard professor, just talks about different philosophies and how to live life. And one thing, I wanted to mention that really resonated with me. I am going to write a blog post about all the lessons I learned from this seminar. And I've already written down my notes in a Word document. So I've got the outline. I just need to bring it to life. But one of them I wanted to mention now, it's something that really stuck with me. He said, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to what someone else is today. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to what someone else is today. And it's really powerful for me, at least, because what that makes me focus on is incremental improvement on a daily basis. And that's what he talks about. Am I better today than I was yesterday? Or better yet, how can I be improved today so that I'm better off today than I was yesterday? I'm a better version of myself today. Than I was yesterday, and he talks about the Matthew principle, where essentially it states that with every success that we have, that increases the probability of a future success. 
And the inverse is true with every failure that we have that increases the probability of the next failure taking place. So what do we do with that information? Well, what I do with that information and what he talks about is if there's something that we are working on and we want to make like a large goal happen or a small goal, let's do a small goal. For me, it's not eat as many sweets. So if I instead just have one less sweet, one less bite of ice cream a day, or I don't eat ice cream every day, by the way, (laughs) if I do something one less time and not totally remove it, then that's incremental progress. And there's a compounding returns on that. And same with the podcast. The podcast is a great example. We have a daily podcast. It's been daily for the last 1500 days. Holy cow there have been compound returns on this podcast. It's made me a multimillionaire. That's for sure, the podcast. In an indirect way, it's made me a multimillionaire. So when we do daily things, and another example is bigger pockets. I champion the thought of going on bigger pockets and being incredibly active, but some people I talk to say, oh, I just can't make enough time to do it. Well, then do one post a day. I can't do that. Okay. Do one post a week. Oh, I I don't know about that. Really? Can't do one post a week. Do one post a week. I don't know. Do one post every two weeks. Fine. I'll do that. So when you do one post every two weeks, you feel some sense of accomplishment. That's pretty weak by the way, but you feel some sense of accomplishment to do one post every two weeks and then you'll get some momentum and that increases the probability of you having future success and increasing the amount of posting that you do on bigger pockets which there will be a direct cause and effect for increased activity on bigger pockets generates an increase in success in your business i'm pretty confident about that so that's one takeaway from the jordan peterson seminar check out his tour if he's coming to your city it's worth the investment i don't recommend getting vip i did get vip with colleen all it is is a picture with him which cool i don't really care about that so much so I wouldn't recommend the VIP thing, but I recommend going to check out his seminar. That Matthew principle, the concept of momentum in the positive direction and the negative direction, it really applies to everything. It's just a truism for everything. If a goal is not going to happen tomorrow, it's baby steps and then nothing will happen for a long time. And then all of a sudden everything will start happening. Not all at once, but it'll have that compounding effect and kind of the same thing in the negative direction too, but we'll focus more on the positive direction for this episode. I didn't realize you were a Jordan Peterson fan. My friend Joey was actually there too. I'm surprised you didn't run into him. Cool. Well, I hadn't read his book and one of my good friends who I respect greatly Mm -hmm. and who has a brilliant mind, someone I worked with in advertising, he's a strategist, GCP, shout out to you, buddy. He told me about Jordan Peterson. So when he tells me about someone, I listen Mm -hmm. and that's why I went there. I'm glad you went and got a lot of it. I'm looking forward to reading that blog post. Mm Mm-hmm. Alrighty, well, just to wrap up. Oh, wait, wait, wait. And we got one more thing, something exciting. Syndication School. Oh, yeah. I should have mentioned this. (laughs) So Syndication School, my friends, we got that coming up. What is Syndication School? It is a series focused on teaching you an aspect of apartment syndication. And Theo is going to lead the charge on that. You are going to learn the how-to of apartment syndication. And it's just going to be on this podcast. So you're not paying for it or anything. We're just giving it to you and it's going to be valuable. 
And the reason why we're doing this is because we've gotten so much feedback on the best ever apartment syndication book that we wrote and the how-to nature of the book. Not just theory-based stuff, but exactly here's how to do things, getting into the details. So starting next month in October, we're going to have a weekly series on apartment syndication. It's going to be a two-part series. So two days out of the week will be Theo doing a lesson on some specific aspect of apartment syndication. So how to find off-market deals. And again, it's not theory-based. It's actual examples of how to do it, getting into the details, how to get capital on your first apartment syndication, how to get the experience, how to attract the right team members, but again, being very, very specific. So it's going to be a two-part series. There are going to be some corresponding documents that you'll get on most of the episodes. So we'll give you a link to go get the free documents. All of it's free, and it's going to be a great way to add value to you if you are an apartment investor or you're someone who wants to bring more capital to your deals via partners, passive or active partners, or someone who's looking to scale your business. If you're in none of those categories, then just skip these two episodes whenever they come up each week. But if you are in either one of those three or all or, or some of those three categories, then this is going to be very valuable for you. Yeah, and I would say listen to him anyways. I'll listen to podcasts with a wholesaler and he'll say some success habit or he'll say something to do with his business that I'm like, oh, I didn't even think about that. How can I apply that to my business? So even if you're a wholesaler or a fix and flipper, I think listening to the, the syndication school will still add value to your business and maybe give you some future ideas of how to, as Joe mentioned, scale your business as well. I'm excited for that. And speaking of the book, make sure you guys pick up a copy on Amazon and leave a review. Guys, guys and, and girls, girls. Guys and girls. And if you leave a review, we'll take a screenshot and send it to us at info at joefairless.com. We will send you some free apartment syndication content. This week's review is from John. John who's, said... Who's not my wife. Yeah. Who's <laughs> <who's> not Colleen. <laughs> John said, I received the book yesterday and plowed through it during a long flight and airport layover. That's impressive. The book is crammed full of practical advice based on Joe's experience actually building a large portfolio of apartment communities over the past five years. Notable aspects of the books are, A, it's highly detailed and contains best practices to achieve success in critical areas like finding deals, underwriting, raising debt, and equity capital. B, a number of options are presented in the book which leaves readers with choices on how to best apply methods to grow their apartment syndication business. Thank you so much for that comment and taking the time out of your layover to write it, assuming that you wrote it during your layover. That is quite a long layover. I went through the book myself right before we published it just to do one final pass through. And I read the whole thing and it took me, let's see, approximately 24 hours, but I did sleep in between the two and I wasn't reading the whole time. So that's very impressive that you read 450 pages during a layover slash I'm sorry that you had a layover (laughs) that long, but nonetheless, thank you, John. And again, if you leave a review on the book and Amazon and email us a screenshot at info at joefairless.com, we'll get you some good stuff that will help you on your apartment investing journey. 
Thanks again for hanging out with us. Hope you have the best ever day and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Do you need debt for your deal, equity for your deal, or maybe a loan guarantor to help you get qualified for the financing? Talk to Mark Belsky. His number is 212-897-9875. That's 212-897-9875. His email is mbelsky at Eastern. EQ.com. What is square made of metal and has half the operating costs of apartments? It might just be real estate's best kept secret. Learn more and get a free one-on-one strategy session from the experts at You Don't Know Self Storage. You can find them at ydkselfstorage.com forward slash best ever.